Okay, this morning we will continue in Second Peter, so take your Bibles and we'll be looking at chapter 2 of Second Peter, verse 17 through 22, and let me read that this morning, Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 17 through 22, and it says, these are springs without water, mist driven by a storm, for whom the blackness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves to corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog turns to his own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing. In the mire. I was reading a story of a famous artist named Paul Gustav Dorr that when he was traveling one country to another in Europe, he had lost his passport. And as he came to the border, he said to the police, I'm sorry, I've lost my passport. I hope that you will let me pass by because I am the great artist Dor Gustav or Gustav Dor. And they replied, oh, you can't deceive us. Many people try to pass claiming they are some distinguished character. But Dor entreated them. And so an officer finally said to him, well, we will soon see whether you are the famous door or not. Take this paper and pencil and sketch that group of people over there. It took just a few minutes for the great artist to make the picture and in such mastery, such a masterly manner, gave it over to the officers and the officers looked at it and and were convinced that he was who he said he was. Now, I say that for this reason, as we've been looking at false teachers, is that saying words is one thing and and saying that you are some particular person. But if you don't prove it, and in this case, he proved it by his actions and his fruit. So profession of faith must have evidence with fruit. So you can convince not only yourself, but others that you are who you say you are, if you are a believer in Christ Jesus. Now, as, as thinking about the false teachers, we've already learned that false teachers are dangerous, so we're to watch out for them. And no matter how popular and well-known, if he denies the lordship of Christ and in their teaching and in their lifestyle, then And then, of course, if he regularly mishandles or twists the word of God, then that person is a false teacher. They must be immediately abandoned and exposed 
false, so false teachers are identified through discernment. I've been talking about and through observing their fruits. We've already looked at uh, the propensities of false teachers in that, number one, false teachers are, have a propensity of being prideful, of being unteachable, of being controlled by unblemishing lusts, and false teachers have a propensity to leave the right way for the wrong way. And that's where we left off in verse 15 of chapter 2, for it says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam. So they basically went their own way instead of God's way. That's what they do. These false teachers leave the way of life. They leave the way of following Jesus Christ and following the apostles' doctrine. And they who follow them depart with them. And they who depart follow someone or something else. Can't have a void. And like last time, we find in verse number 15, they left what they were doing and they went the way of Balaam, son of Beor. And remember, Balaam, his name became synonymous with the sins of greed and the sins of immorality and idolatry, and of course, which led to a departure from God and then the judgment of God upon them. So false teachers cause people to be led away from the straight paths into all kinds of sinful behavior. So the point of last week was that Balaam is an example of a false teacher who became worldly and led God's people into sin and destruction. False teachers are deceptive, outwardly They are wearing sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ready to destroy the truth, the gospel, the person of Christ, and the people's lives that follow them, while they masquerade at the same time as servants of righteousness, that all false teachers who deny the lordship of Christ become worldly, seeking possessions, seeking money, seeking popularity, seeking success, acceptance, security from the world, and forsaking the right way, they go astray, they lead God's people astray, and they end up being destroyed or coming under God's judgment. So again, these these teachers are dangerous, and we are to avoid them. So that brings me to the fifth reason or the fifth propensity to have that false teachers have, and, and they have a propensity to have an empty and unstable character. Now, look in your Bibles in verse number 17 of chapter 2, and it says there, there it gives us two pictures of them and then a warning about them. The first picture in verse number 17 is the picture that these are springs without water. That's the first picture. Now, That means that they are like springs that offer water to travelers who have been crossing a dry, barren desert. But when the travelers reach the springs, they're dry. They're without water, unable to quench the thirst or provide any kind of life-giving refreshment to those who need to be refreshed. Second picture in verse number 17, they are as mists 
driven by a storm. That means they are like clouds that offer rain to water the ground so as to produce a nourishing crop for a farmer. But when the clouds arrive, hoping to provide needed rain, they're driven away by the rushing wind of a storm. Instead of rain, they're left with a high, arid, dry climate. So because these false teachers twist the scriptures and often abandon them and replace them with their own empty stories, the water of the word of God cannot provide the needed refreshment in order for one's faith to grow and to increase. It's just like when you're reading through Proverbs, you come to a passage like this. It says, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. That's what the word of God should be for us. It's a fountain of life. We can go to it and drink from it. And then another passage in Proverbs that it says there, the words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. So the, the brook is just bubbling over with refreshment for anyone who comes by and needs to drink from it. And, of course, drink from the Word of God, the truth of the Word of God, the wisdom of the Word of God to just nourish and bless your soul. False teachers, though, cannot quench the thirst of people nor water the seed of God's Word in people's hearts. Their ideas come from their own imaginations, which cannot give hope for life's journey, nor for facing the trials and temptations of daily living. In dealing with eternity and God and Christ and Scripture, they are empty as a dry well, unstable as clouds driven by the winds of a storm. But notice in verse number 17, there's a warning to them at the end of the verse, for whom the dark, the black darkness has been reserved. Now this is this is a sobering thought that these false teachers actually have reserved seats in the blackest darkness of hell. Unless they turn and truly repent and believe in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, surrender to his lordship and then return to the truth of Scripture that is provided for all life and godliness, eternal gloom is their state and destiny. Why is that? Because their depravity is extreme. So they, their punishment will also be extreme. And what is Peter referring to here, the apostle? He's referring to the darkness of hell. Just like it says in Matthew and Luke, it says, Then the king said to the servant, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we see that the Word of God is giving us ample information about being discerning when it comes to the character of a false teacher, and their character is hollow and empty. That leads to a sixth propensity of a false teacher, found in verse 18 and 19, and it is this, that false teachers have a propensity to use swelling words but have a hollow message. They use, first of all, words, inflated words that are empty. Notice in verse 18, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity. So they are 
In other words, good as speaking. They use flowery language, excellency of speech, lofty stories coupled with descriptive phrases. Yet their words are puffed up, hollow, because it's only their own ideas, it's only their own opinions. In other words, they're they're full of hot air. And yet their inflated words about their own insights and boasts are about themselves. Therefore, their words are actually toxic air. Jude picks this up, and he says this. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. If you ever did a study on the the word flatter in Scripture, you'll find no good results from that word. It is actually a word that identifies a manipulative heart, someone who wants to manipulate, control people. Now, I've been reading through the Bible using the chronological approach. If you've ever done that, I've never done that, then you should try to do that. It just lays out the Bible the way the Bible is actually written historically. So it puts things in places that shows you what happens next. Like, for example, when David has a battle... And then you read the psalm that goes with that battle. So you say, oh, that's where he wrote that psalm. So it's a good way to read through the scripture. I recommend that you would do that if you've never done that before. And I've been just reading through uh, that this week, and I came across Job and his counsel, the counsel that his friends gave him. Now, Job's friends are, if you just look at their language, they're clever, they're verbose, they're convincing. And yet, all their conclusions are all wrong. And you think, you know, they're just really high-sounding nonsense is what they're spewing out of their mouth. And when God finally speaks in Job chapter 38, this is what God says about Job's friend and their counsel. This is what he says. He says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That's exactly what false teachers do. They, they, they talk a lot. They usually have a very impressive presence, but they do not give counsel that brings light and counsel that brings true knowledge. So once one departs from the right way and the way of truth is rejected, that's the Bible, the scriptures, then they conclude wrongly. False teachers described in 2 Peter are said to be scoffing at the teaching of the prophets and the apostles about Jesus Christ coming back again. We're going to deal with that in chapter 3. So the false teachers could have taught the incarnation, they have, could, could have taught the resurrection and the coming kingdom, and even if they touched those subjects, they really handled them as just mere stories, nothing to be too serious about. So in other words, they have a different gospel, they have a different Jesus, Their creed and their core doctrines are all wrong because their words are arrogant and their words are empty. And then notice in verse number 18, 
they use sedu- seducing words to entrap people. Notice what it says. They entice, verse 18, by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. So false teachers lure people to the lust of the flesh. Now, we all have a physical drive. We all have a human nature, and we understand the sinful nature. And while God created us to find pleasure in things like sex and food and entertainment, but he does it in a way where there are prescribed parameters around those things. Marriage, sex is only going to be honorable before God in marriage. That is it. He never intended for our pursuits of pleasure to dominate us, but always to be kept within parameters. But this is where the false teachers exploit people in their base fleshly desires, and they begin to blur the lines between right and wrong. Physical drives become the motivating force in a person's life. False, false teachers do not help people put boundaries on their physical drives. In fact, feelings, not truth, play a dominant role in deciding right and wrong. If it makes me happy, it's got to be right. God wants me to be happy. At least this should be happy for me, maybe not for you. That's his pragmatism. That's rationalizing our sin. Now, I don't know if some of you may remember, but years ago there was a movement called the user-friendly church movement. Now, maybe that's still part of a movement today. But those who were driving that movement decided to carefully choose music and skits to try to make unbelievers comfortable and not much was really dismissed as inappropriate. Yet one of the few things judged out of place in the church by that group was the centrality of the pulpit, was the clear and forceful preaching and teaching of God's word. Of course, there was a message, but frequently the message was very psychological and it was a motivational in style. Now, this philosophy of ministry, now, everybody who was part of that philosophy of ministry were not necessarily false teachers because I think that they, when they started, they didn't know where it was going to head. But that philosophy of ministry subtly brought worldly practices into the church in an attempt to try to attract non-Christians or seekers by appealing to their fleshly interests. Now, in a very similar way today, uh, music is being used to draw people to the message behind the music. In other words, that music today is the gateway to whatever doctrines that are taught behind the music. In other words, they lead people in to their way of thinking and way of living by music, and then they teach them. Teaching should be first. It should always be first. So, in other words, their casualties are people who come, or teachers that really teach in the name of God, 
but then they capture the minds and the lives and the loyalties of unstable souls and only lead them away from God and away from the Word of God. So who do the false teachers actually lure away? Well, they lure away immature believers. They lure away young believers. They lure away new believers that are barely escaping, meaning that they are not yet totally free from the normal patterns and ways of the world and the old way of life. Look what it says in verse 18, of those who barely escape from the one ones who live in error. See, so these are unstable, who do not see through the seduction of being drawn away into the bait trap that was set for them. They are not trained yet in Scripture, enough to be able to pick out these charlatans and get away from them. Through the grace of God's grace, new believers have newly escaped from their former manner of life, but have not yet learned the places where the old life is really sinful and wrong before God. That will come as the Spirit of God teaches us. So this warning to those who are not, this warning is to those who are not rooted and grounded in the Lord and in God's Word. The believers really only hope of not stumbling and falling is a constant study and exposure and meditation on God's word and in following Christ and serving his people. So when you sometimes uh, see that some of this philosophy of ministry, it really draws young people. Music draws young people. All right, But the message is not necessarily in the music. It seems like it's a great worship experience, but it's a draw, it's a gateway into what they finally are teaching behind the music because you go to a website, you click on it, say, I like that song, and then all of a sudden the preachers behind that music come up and then you listen to the message and see that's how they draw people in. That's not, how, that's not the medium. The Word of God is the medium. If there's no music at all, the Word of God is the medium in which God brings us to a place where he convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, and someone comes in humble repentance to believe and call upon Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So their words are inflated yet empty. They're seducing and entrap people. So there's a third thing about the words in verse number 19. It says, they use promising words that deliver little but enslavement. Look what it says. This is promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So sin, remember, always, always enslaves. No matter what the false teaching is, false teaching actually aids sin. It gives it license. That false teachers promise freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from moral restraints. Freedom from fear of final judgment. But their promises only enslave those who listen to them and follow them because they are enslaved themselves. 
they do away with godly restraints and demands in order to gain worldly freedom. You can't promise liberty to someone, to those who are bound hand and foot to their own depravity. See, the supreme... These teachers actually themselves enslaved by corruption because they have are, are, are already mastered by corruption. So a teacher who ends up denying Christ and God's word, at least in their behavior, in their teaching, end up removing the supreme authority over people's lives. When they do that, when this takes place, a person pretty much is free to live in selfishness and greed and lust. The more a person gets, the more they want. And that's how sin is. You're never always completely satisfied. It may be he desires wealth and possessions, or he seeks pleasure and comfort in sex, in power, in position, in authority. It doesn't matter what he seeks here on earth. It just will never satisfy. And so what they are offering is really living a life without any kind of restrictions because you're now a Christian, so now you're free. That, that was, that's the teaching. Now, theologically, there's a big word for that, and it's the word antinomianism, and that means to live without law. Another way uh, that has been described as, and actually is named by, it's called hypergrace or hyperlove. Now, that's really false teaching because it leads people to behave, actually to believe that I can live any way I want to. And the, and the rationalization, when that's in your thinking, goes something like this. It's no big deal that I have sinned. I'm forgiven. They think that they can live any way they choose because they have received God's grace. But this is what Jude says about that. He says that they are ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. See, live, live the way you want. You're free. See, the problem is the Word of God doesn't teach that about God's grace. Instead, the grace of God leads to godly living, which the epistle of Titus says, for God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And what does the grace of God do? Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. That's what God's grace leads to. That's what healthy doctrine leads to. But there is a presumption that happens too. And of course, presumption just means to take too much for granted, to take it too far, to take it to a place that it really 
loses its meaning. So the presumption in their thinking is this. When I sin, I'll just confess it. See, that's presumption. See, the Lord, and of course, Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, or do you presume? That means you think lightly of something on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of, God's kindness is meant to lead one to repentance. So you can either live without restrictions as a Christian and, as the false teachers say, live free and doing whatever you want, or there's a flip side to that too, that either you're going to live by no law or you're going to live by legalism. And legalism... Uh, says, yes, Christ died for sins, but I earn favor with God through what I do. So these two strategies for dealing with sin is either you blow off sin or you try to work it off. Both are not right. Both are unbiblical. Or it could be a combination of the two. So in other words, man must be restrained. Christians must be restrained by the authority above themselves, that is, by God, by his word, by his Holy Spirit. And he must think and ponder the truth that those who are in Christ are no longer slaves to sin. They are now slaves to righteousness. They're slaves to doing what is right. There's actually slaves, we are actually slaves to obey God. And God's a good master. But our thinking has to be changed when it comes to what do we do with our sin? Well, what does it say in Romans chapter 6? Let me just give you a few verses. It says, what shall we say then, Paul says in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Of course, the answer is no. May it never be, he says. How shall we who died to sin live in it? All right? Sin's a reality, yes. But... We've died to it. That means it has no more power over us unless we give it power. And then secondly, in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 6, it says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we who we would no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. And so our freedom is we have freedom to say no to sin. No, I'm not going to live that way anymore by the power of God. No, I'm not going to commit that sin anymore. And if I fall into a sin, it will not be habitual. It will not be continual. I will make sure that I'll hate my sin as I grow in Christ. And then Paul goes on to say, so consider yourself. That means think about it, ponder it, consider yourself, and know that you are dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. You are now alive to the voice of God. You are alive to the Spirit of God working in your life, and so therefore live there. Now, if a person does not do that, or if they cannot do that, then that person becomes enslaved to their own passions and to the corruption that is in the world. 
when these overcome a person, then that person is enslaved to that particular passion, whatever it may be. And that's why we see in our passage here, especially in verse number 20, it says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then again are entangled in them. So that leads me to my last point of the propensity of false teachers and that they have a propensity of being presumptuous. Right? Again, presumption basically means taking too much for granted. They, what do they presume? They presume that they are right on the right path when they are on the wrong path. They presume that they are teaching and doing the right things and saying the right things when they are not. They presume that they are right with God when they are not right with God. So again, we come full circle from where we started by seeing that false teaching leads to the wrong way with devastating results. So there is a warning of a standard presumption that people have. In verse number 20, I'll just mention that again, where he says, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Now, what is the presumption? The presumption of these false teachers is that because they've escaped the world's contaminating moral influence, they assume they're truly saved when they are not. And if you notice again in verse number 20, they have a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Hence, they believe they have the true gospel. But the problem is the gospel never takes root in their heart. Now, what happened? Because they were not truly saved, they had no power to overcome the flesh and the worldly allurements that were around them. So were duped by the flesh and by the world system and became entangled like a fish caught in a net. And they were overcome because they could not overcome the power of their own flesh because they were not truly saved. They had a head knowledge of the truth, but no regeneration in the heart. They weren't born again. For a while, they were delivered from the pollution of the world, but with no supernatural work of grace having been formed in in their souls could not continue because the lusting of the flesh proved to be too strong for them. In other words, the flesh and the world overpowered them and defeated them and conquered them. In verse number 20, it says, and they again, they are again entangled in them and overcome. And the last state becomes worse for them than the first. So notice that he is in a worse position than if he had never begun with Christ. 
Why? Because he has known the truth and has deliberately rejected it and even sometimes taught against it, ignored it. He has corrupted the truth of Christ and is leading others into destruction, dooming their very souls. So the, really the warning for us is against returning to the world, against returning to our old entanglements, our old life. We can't go back. There's nothing to go back to. Now, just because you prayed a prayer and asked Jesus into your heart and were baptized and even joined the church and made a profession of faith, that is not a guarantee that you have an entranceway into the kingdom of God. Now, all those things are important, and they should all be there. But it could be what Christ said about those who were demon-possessed in Matthew chapter 12, when he says, then, it's, then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it, when it comes, it will find it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. This is the way it will also be in the evil generation. So again, the picture of someone having all the truth, everything that you need to be saved, and turning away from it. That's a, that, where do you go if that happens? Now, there's a great Old Testament example that I like to illustrate with two people who had similar opportunities and yet went different ways. It's the example of Ruth and Orpha. Both were Moabites. Both were raised under paganism. Both married young Hebrew men. Both had Naomi as their mother-in-law. Both heard the great truth of redemption. Both learned of the true and living God. Both lost their husbands in death. Both were faced with a crisis when their mother-in-law, Naomi, announced to her daughters-in-law after their husbands died and her husband had died that I'm returning to the promised land. I'm returning to the God of my father's and I want to restore, be restored back to my people. Both of them at that point expressed a decision to go with Naomi, to go back. However, this is where the similarity ends, because even though Orpha took a few steps with Naomi and Ruth toward the promised land, Orpha began to think about the Moabites, that they, the Moabite nation that she left, and she turned back. She turned back to the darkness. She turned back to the Moabites and their demon gods. She turned back to her pagan lifestyle in Moab. And yet Ruth kept following Naomi. 
went to the promised land and ended up becoming a genuine believer and follower of the Lord God. She is known for her famous statement of faith in Ruth chapter 1 where she says, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where I go, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. That is a statement of faith that Ruth had the real thing while Orpha left it and did not follow it. And then Ruth was purchased by the Redeemer Boaz. And Boaz is a picture of Christ, a Christ-like kinsman, someone who buys somebody from, actually it would be the slave market of sin. In Boaz's case, that he was in, in actually redeeming Ruth, that he was able to do it, he was wealthy enough to do it, he was willing to purchase her, and that is the picture of Christ when he saves us, that he is willing to save us. He has the power and wealth to save us, and he does save anyone who comes to him in repentance of faith, and no one is cast out because of who Christ is. So the warning here is anyone, anyone who learned enough about Christ to make a profession of faith, gets baptized, gets connected to a church, they even clean, clean up their outward life and give up even maybe getting drunk or getting high on pot or drugs, stops swearing, gives up stealing and immorality, and starts doing right things and saying right things. This all may be just the mere profession of faith. If that does not continue, the rest of your life. And then a person, all of a sudden, they make a decision to go back to their old life. Their old sinful patterns. And even their own religious or philosophical system of belief. And they stay there. And they never come back. You know what that's called in Scripture? Apostasy. That they knew people knew the truth and they did not come back. They left it. Now, it doesn't mean they leave a religious system. And it doesn't even mean they leave going to church. It means they leave the truth. They leave the Word of God. That's what they leave. That's apostasy. Now, this is, a, this is a very, very serious matter indeed because if anyone leaves the truth and leaves following after Christ only to turn back from the straight way of righteousness. If, if, if they repudiate a Christian upbringing, or if they be, spurn a former profession of faith, if they outright reject Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, then, then what, is, what is left for them? Where, where do they go? There's no other place to go. And just as the scripture was read this morning in Hebrews 6, the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit gives a grim warning 
to those described in such a condition, meaning that the Jews had everything they needed to be saved. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to get them to come on all the way over and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Get out of your system of Judaism and believe Jesus is the Messiah. That's what he's doing in Hebrews. And this is what he says in chapter 6, verse 4 to 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and having tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they know all that, and then it says this in verse 6, and then they fall away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they have crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. There is a place where you cannot return if you cast off the faith and cast off the truth. That's why in John chapter 6, when Jesus gives that message of the gospel and uh, the whole multitude leaves him and the 12 apostles are left there, and Jesus says, will you leave me too? And they said to him, what? Where are we going to go? There's no other place to go. When you come to Christ, there's no other place to go. That's a good thing. Because then you're going to keep going forward and you're going to grow in Christ. Now, saying all that, I want to make a distinction between what is a backslider and what is an apostate. I don't want you to get those mixed up. Because you know what? All of us at one time in our Christian walk will backslide or have backslidden. Right? Those times that we just kind of drift away from the Lord. And, um, you know, we kind of get a little bit stale and cold and doubtful. And, you know, everyone that I know of has some time in their life come to that place. But a backslider is genuinely saved and gets away from the Lord, gets caught maybe in a sin and stays there for some time, maybe a short time, maybe be a little longer, but they're miserable there. Their worldly environment is not joyful, and sin really brings them down. So what happens at that point? Well, either the person comes back on their own, repents of their sin, and gets things right, or the Lord brings them back by divine discipline, because all who are gods, God will discipline, right? And when God disciplines you, you know he loves you, because he's not going to allow his kids to live any old way they want. He's going to bring them back. And then, or he can take your life. He can, somebody can die of a premature death because they, they're caught in such a place where God has to bring them, get them out of it, you know? And, and that's up to the Lord. I don't know about that, but the Lord sometimes does that. He does take the life of his children for their own sake. All right, but an apostate, despite a profession of faith, has never been saved. That's important to know, that he or she leaves the truth. They have nothing in their desire. They have nothing in the power of their flesh to turn back because they are overpowered by their flesh, and they cannot rescue themselves. 
So that brings me to my the last thing in the scripture, verse 21 and 22. The warning with a simple principle. And what is that? It's a warning is against turning from the way of righteousness and from the holy commandment. Notice what it says in verse 21. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. So the way of righteousness is Jesus Christ. He is the one who has made it possible for God to count us righteous and accept us in the beloved. The holy commandment refers to all of God's commandments, all the word of God. All the word of God leads to faith in Christ and obedience to God. That's what the word of God does. False teachers do use the word of God. But they pick and choose and manipulate God's word. They circumvent what they deem inconvenient and distasteful. They refuse to be ruled by Scripture and proceed to use Scripture in a manner that would make allowances for their own sinful and selfish agenda. It's just like false teachers are really, really, they they demonstrate a chasm between their reputation, and the quality of their character. They are similar to the teachers of the law who were concerned more about the outward appearance than the inner heart. And even Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees of his day, but inside they are full of robbery and indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. So false teachers are consumed with reputation, yet content with the sin that's in their heart. They relish in their role as spiritual guides, yet they harbor evil thoughts in their mind towards even their own followers. So for someone who is a Christian, someone who preaches and teaches the word of God, God insists, he insists, that both reputation and character are in order. And so there is a warning now in Scripture of a scriptural proverb. Look at verse 22. In other words, if there's no change in nature, there's no desire for holiness, there's no conversion. Notice what it says. Actually, this is a quote from Proverbs 26, verse 11 and 12. And it says this, It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. And the the operative word there is returns. Now, just imagine being compared to a dog that returns to its vomit and to a washing hog that returns to wallowing around in the foul, smelly mud. Foul within, filthy without. They have a perverted appetite, and they feel at home in the mud. Now it goes to show that this is the very nature of these animals. No matter how much you try to domesticate them and clean them up, they cannot 
or you cannot change their animal nature. In both cases, while the animals have been cleansed on the outside, there has been no change to their nature. There has been no change inside. That is a description of a apostate false teacher. And the warning is against if you have no changed nature, no new desires, there is no conversion because you don't want to follow Christ. Now, what can we learn there? Uh, even though this is a description of false teachers, there's some things we can glean from these scriptures, some admonitions that we can implement every day. And one of them is don't be naive, as I said last time. Don't be influenced by these teachers because they are influential. Also, beware of the enslaving, destructive power of sin, like pride and greed and sinful lust, especially being cognizant of the inner character traits that drive those sins. In other words, don't look at the fruit on the branches. Look in your heart where the root of sin is, the selfishness is, and the absence of self-control is, and the love you have for possessions and money, and the love you may have for sexual immorality or something else. Sin always carries the power to enslave you. Sin is presented in temptation as pleasurable and satisfying. However, it gives birth to destruction. Also, persevere to make every single effort you can to participate in the divine nature. That's chapter 1 of Second Peter. And why do you do that? In order to de- demonstrate the genuine nature of your faith by the observable display of the qualities of your divine nature. So to make one salvation, your own salvation, sure, and your Christian walk stable as you're growing and following Christ, never looking to the right or to the left, keeping on the straight and narrow. You continue to grow in Christ-likeness, and that provides evidence of your faith, that your faith is genuine, it's real, it's not perfect. Your life is not perfect, but it's genuine. You don't want to go back, you want to go forward. You want to grow in your love for Christ. So scripture motivates us to carefully and honestly evaluate ourselves. Scripture calls professing churchgoers to re-examine the reality of their relationship with Christ. That's when when you're reading Scripture, you come across passages like this. Test yourself to see that you're in the faith. Why is that there? Because it wants you to know. Scripture wants you, the Spirit of God wants you to know that you're the genuine thing, that you're not faking it, you're not being hypocritical. You are a real Christian. You know where you're going. You know who you love. You know the truth. And the truth sets you free. And then also Hebrews 12, where it says, See to it that one comes, no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. And then in, in our own passage in 
2 Peter 1.10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never, never stumble. So that we will have an acute awareness of our need to abide in Christ. So that we will make, it will make us vigilant to walk in faith. So that these all ought to lead to eager repentance when we sin and when we stumble and fervency when we come to the Lord and confess those things to lead us to a regular and an honest appraisal of our continual need for holiness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So we're not only saved and forgiven of sin, we're saved to sanctification. We're saved to being set apart unto Christ. And you cannot have a genuine relationship with God whose nature is essentially good and remain evil in conduct. You can't have both. If our message is going to be believed, it must be backed up by a consistent life of holiness. So these scriptures are sobering as we turn them around and look at ourselves through the lens of scripture you have to ask yourself, where do I stand today with Christ? Am I truly a believer? Or am I just fooling myself? So if you don't know that, you're wondering about it, you don't know where you're really at, you need to talk to me or someone else in our church to be able to, to get those things straight now because eternity may be tomorrow for someone. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. But right now, when the Spirit of God is moving, deal with those things. Are you really a believer? Have you really trusted Him as Lord and Savior? Is your desire to live for Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Is that where the Spirit of God leads you? I pray that it would become clear to you and that you would become, as Peter says, a stable Christian. Can't be tossed to and fro by any wind of doctrine that comes your way, but you're strong. You know what you believe. You know where you're going. You know whom you love. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the greatness of your word. And in it, the truth that is contained, so we can have discernment, so we don't have to be duped by every single thing that comes, every new thing that comes, everything that seems to be right and it's not. Lord, thank you that your word gives us discernment. And I pray, Lord, in regards to ourself, that, Lord, we would honestly examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith and whether we're really living for you. And I pray, Lord, if that we've gotten off track and we have backslidden, bring those people back today. Let today be the day the word of God grips their heart and brings them back to following you in sincerity and love to Christ. And I pray, Lord, keep us. Don't let us wander off, Lord. And I thank you for the church that we can together help each other walk on the straight and narrow. Until, Lord, you come again, until you take us home, let us be faithful to live for you and serve you. In Christ I pray it. Amen.